1: This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Houghton Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co-hosts Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Carty, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the host will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer.
2: Okay, so I have a question I'm really eager to hear y'all's response to as Folks who love to read and read tons of things, I want to go back to the beginning and I want to hear what was your favorite book as a child? What started, what book can you point back to and feel like it started you on this
1: journey? Okay, Claude, I'm going to cheat.
3: You cheat. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: You're totally going to call me a cheater. I'm just going to say an author. I'm going to say Royal Doll because, you know, when you're a kid, if you find a book you love by somebody then you just read all of that person. And so that was Royal doll for me. I mean, I think I can't remember what I read first because I I, I read witches I loved witches. Just, I mean, it felt like a whole nother myth. The kids turning into mice and um, the purple eyes. I remember always like walking around and seeing if people around me had purple eyes afterwards, or if they'd be like scratching their heads and they secretly had wigs. And uh, it just, it made me look at everything differently. And I think a lot of his books do that, but they do that from the perspective of a kid. I I don't know if a lot of kids' books are always written from that perspective. There's so many of them that seem to be talking down to children. And Royal Doll's books never talk down to children. They let you be mad at your parents. They let you dislike your teachers. <laughs> they yeah. really allowed you kind of this this rebellious spirit where you're pushing boundaries and you're thinking through like, is the lady next door who looks evil? Could she be a witch? Like, am I allowed to think that? Can I play that out? And what would it look like um, if she was? And how would my whole world be different? And, you know, he does that with James the Giant Peach or Matilda. Um, what is special about being a kid that gives you insight into all the adults in your life? And so I was just, I was addicted to Royal Doll.
3: I feel like Judy Bloom is another author that does similar, like that lets kids be kids in in the in her works, and that really shines through. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, for me, um, I could kind of cheat similarly and just name an author, but I'll name a, spe- uh, a specific uh, work from this author, and it's Walter Dean Myers, um, and it is uh, Monster. Uh, I'll, I would also give a hat tip to Slam. Um, so I, I think there's there's obviously an explosion of young adult literature um over the last i mean probably really since like 2000 um 2005 um but walter d myers is kind of like the og of the game um like he's been at doing this for for a while monster i think came out in 2001 um i've read this i think in middle school eighth grade and it's a, it's his only sort of novel that's written as a um with sort of a um kind of different concept it's it's actually written as a as a script and so it's this um this teenager that is uh in, in prison or about to go to trial uh, mm-hmm. for uh, for a crime uh, and he's considered a monster right uh, for for committing a, the, the, this mm-hmm. crime and so he says you know let me let me just tell the story of my life mm-hmm. and he tells it and it 's really kind of him in, in prison in these courtroom scenes and it's really powerful so I think walter d myers uh, i mean he's written tons of stuff I think he uh, he's an author that uh, really captured i think just the um a lot of the trials that 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 exist and the and the traps and temptations that exist um in, in, in cities and in, in, in any community really. But he captured in a way that was really vivid, um, and and really powerful. So those were books I think for me as a kid and as a teen, reading those it, it felt like a bridge into serious literature. Like it was right. work that that was serious, but it was also written um written toward, toward me where I was, um, as an adolescent. So I think he's, uh, one of the greats, um, for, for young adult literature and big author that shaped my childhood.
2: That's, that's great. I never did read that, but, uh, you mentioning that makes me remember. I do. I do because, uh, not, not from, not from kind of my own. Yes. Um, not from my own, um, kind of reading history, but I taught high school English for several years Mm. and there was a year that several of the students in my class were reading that book and they would have to give book talks. Uh, and, and I remember, uh, being taken by kind of their, their response to it and flagging that in my mind, but, uh, never went back to, to chase it down. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that one. Um, uh, mine is, is, uh, very obvious and, um, and and really uncreative but i i I give it anyway just because of what a profound mark it made on me it's the lion the witch in the wardrobe Mm -hmm. um Ah, that is the book that i can trace it all back to it's the book that really caused me to fall in love with reading and in many ways i i feel like every time i open a new book i'm hoping to get back into narnia you know (laughs) I'm, i'm hoping that that's the book that will whisk me back in um, you know, but, but like in, like, like in the Narnia stories, the only way you can know for certain, you're not going to get in is if you try, you know, uh, uh, it's never the same portal. You can't ever, you know, uh, force your way, your way in. Um, but everything about that, 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 that book and that experience, um, was magical for me as were the rest of the Chronicles, but, but specifically that book and, and, and what it kind of ignited in me. And so it was with, uh, no great sense of devastation that when I read the book with my daughters for the first time, something I've been waiting on since they were born. Like, yeah, it was good.
1: Oh,
2: yeah. like, what do you <laughs> mean? it's. I mean, it's it's good. It's amazing. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. It's the greatest experience you've ever had in your life. Tell me again how great it was. Uh, but but no, that's 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 my book.
1: Oh, well, it makes me remember, like, being a kid, I wanted to write stories that had that kind of influence. I just, I wonder if that's even possible to have that level of influence over adults that children's yeah. books have on, like, creating the way we see things.
2: That's a super question, but that's exactly what it did for me. I mean, it it just enlivened my imagination. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Well, listen, those were great answers. Uh, I I, I love that question. love hearing y'all's responses to that. So uh, everybody stay tuned. We're going to now listen to a great interview.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. Abraza's press book that I recommend is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth by Beth Allison Barr. In the book, Barr shows that the biblical womanhood isn't biblical, but was born in a clearly definable historical moment, and she presents a better way forward for the contemporary church. Get 30% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit.
1: Hello, welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. I am excited because we are gonna talk about Dorothy Day's long loneliness. And I have a great dedication to this book. I own it on Audible, so I do listen to it every few years. I have not gotten back into the pages in a few years. So this was great for me to get to read it and return to my highlights and my notes and, and just have this love affair once again with Dorothy Day. This time, I read it a little differently. I first read D.L. Mayfield's Unruly Saint, her biography about Dorothy Day, before I read The Long Loneliness for probably the third or fourth time. And I read it differently. And so I really wanted to talk to D.L. about her book and about why she was writing about Day and and what The Long Loneliness has to say to us in 2022. So I've asked D.L. to join me. D.L., would you mind just introducing yourself for people?
4: Yeah, thank you so much. That was... I mean, that was so good for me to hear because I wrote my biography of Dorothy Day as sort of like a primer for people to get some context, background, and make it a little bit more accessible to read Dorothy Day's um, book, The Long Loneliness, which is such an important book in like American religious writing. Uh, And so I, I just... That just really made my day that you said that. Um, so I'm a freelance writer. I've written a few books and my most recent one is about Dorothy Day. It's called Unruly Saints, Dorothy Day's Radical Vision and it's challenge for our times. I live in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I think it's important to say I'm a Protestant, so I'm not a Catholic, but I'm someone who has been, um, I've been on a journey with Dorothy Day for you know over a decade. And I just think she has a lot to say to so many of us right now. And while I was researching the book, too, I really focused in on her early life and the birth of the Catholic worker movement, which we will talk about more, I'm sure, in you know the 1930s, Great Depression, New York City, societal collapse, people of faith saying, what are we supposed to do? How do we live up to the words and ethics of Jesus at this pivotal moment? I was like, oh. There's some stuff for it today. Yeah. There's some
1: stuff for today in here. Yeah, absolutely. I just read a quote from Diana Butler Bass has a newsletter and she quotes Thomas Merton, where I think he says something like, all of us die by the same history twice or something like that, like the, oh, the, over the course of our lives. And she's writing about in the context of like, she fought Christian nationalism in the 80s. And then here we are again mm-hmm. in 2022. And so mm-hmm. she uses this quote to say, you know, these stories are cyclical. The history, the problems, they come up again. So what you're doing with day, I thought was really effective to kind of show what was happening in the thirties and forties and fifties is still, these are, these are sins. They're repetitive, they're cyclical. They don't go away. You know, Christ says the poor will always be with you, but he also could have said like racism and misogyny and sin and temptation will always be with you. (laughs) You Right. The the sermon on the Mount will always
4: be a radical manifesto. in our world and, and specifically in America. And I think it's, yes. it's time to think about that.
1: Oh, I love that. And I love that you do. I was reading Therese last night, which is Dorothy day's bio about the saint. And I'm just going to read part of it because I think it has to do with your title. And then maybe you can explain your title and why it is that you wanted to talk about day and who she was. And before we jump into her book. So day writes, I thought the days of saints had passed. At that time, when she was first converting, she did not understand we are all called to be saints, as St. Paul puts it. The saint is the holy man, the whole man, the integrated man. And we all wish to be that. I thought that was a great explanation of what a saint is, especially for Protestants, you know, like you and me, who are reawakening to this idea of a saint. So why did you call your book Unruly Saint? and, and what does it have to do with day's biography?
4: Well, I originally wanted to title it like not a saint because I think there's these very popularized, uh, sayings attributed to Dorothy. Like, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. And and some of these quotes, like they don't appear in print, she never wrote them down. And so they're a little bit like, Oh, we're not sure. Um, but then as I was working on the book, um, you know, it became clear to me that Dorothy Day is in the actual canonization process Mm -hmm. to be an actual saint in the Catholic Church. And so I needed to spend a bit more time thinking through that term, both through just the actual, like, hierarchical process, which is, like, Millions of dollars get poured into who gets to be a saint. It's quite political. So there's all that stuff going on. But then deeper is just this sense I had like, yeah, Dorothy Day probably said that and probably had those kinds of thoughts that maybe were also tied to what it meant to be a really religious woman, what it meant to resist um, power in all its Mm -hmm. forms. Um, And also, just the more I, I studied her, the more I was like, she did want to be a saint, like mm-hmm. I, that's just a sense I had, and and she thought a lot more people should try um, mm-hmm. to live like saints as well. And so for me, it, it's it's complicated. So I kind of settled on this unruly saint. She's mm-hmm. she's a saint-like person that should and does make religious power uncomfortable, mm-hmm. even within you know, the Catholic church. So that's kind of where I settled on that.
1: Yeah. I, I loved the title because I thought she doesn't follow the rules, not meaning that she's a, you know, libertarian, all license, all whatever, but more along the lines of the rules that got Pharisees in trouble don't apply to her, right? She is just against any pharisaicalism that she sees in the Catholic church. And so in that sense, she's not a rule follower. She's, She's a spirit law follower, but she's not the rule follower. And she had, she kind of had fun with
4: it. Even sometimes like,
1: She would just,
4: you know, in her paper, and one of the things I really wanted to focus on in my book is even now, like quite removed from her actual life, right? She started her radical Catholic newspaper for the poor in 1933, right? In the shadow of the Great Depression in New York City, there's this huge crisis of housing and work and, um, you know, communism is on the rise. Fascism is on the rise, like all this stuff is going on. And she was like, no, we we want to do this. And so she would write things in her paper and some like Catholic priests were like, can you please stop calling your paper the Catholic worker? Like, And she was modeling on The Daily Worker, which was a communist mm-hmm. newspaper. So she's like, I want to do what the communists are doing, which they're reaching the everyman, you know, and telling the everyman we see that the world really sucks for you. Mm -hmm. And we have a solution. She's like, (laughs) well, I do too. And actually the social teaching of the Catholic church Mm -hmm. has for a very long time. So she refused to change the name of her paper. She's like, no, this is Catholic. This is your social teaching, which she learned from Peter Morin. Mm -hmm. Um, And she refused to change, but she would sometimes get called in right, to talk to the leaders in the Catholic church. And then she would kind of play dumb almost. She'd be like, oh, I'm just like, a lay person, like I have no authority. So, like, you know, there's no way to get her in trouble because mm. she wasn't a man and she wasn't a priest. And so they actually didn't have a ton of power over her. And I, mm. I just love that about her. She'd write these extremely radical things and then be like, but I'm just a lady. Like, how, <laughs> can, how can I get in trouble? And I don't know. There's something yeah. like kind of amazing to me about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, she was both humble and subversive. I mean, that's what you're describing. Oh, yeah, just she knew how to do that. Well, Mm -hmm, right. mm -hmm. I I know at the end of long loneliness, she mentions if she could have gone back in time, she would have called her paper the people. Instead of the Catholic worker, because she was was so drawn to Peter Moran's idea of personalism and communitarianism, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that being differentiated from communism later in her life, right? Later, she was like, "Oh, communitarianism is what I'm talking about. Personalism is what we're talking about here. That's the that's the difference between us and the secular atheist communist." Right? She was always trying to draw that line because communism was atheist. And yet she was like, but they're doing so many good things. And so she was able to see with nuance, which I thought that's what you were doing in your book, too. Like you kept saying it's complicated. There's nuance. This isn't just black and white or cut and dry. Like, it's not like that.
4: And it's it's very influenced by history. Like Peter Morin wanted to call the paper the Catholic radical because he was so into this idea. He you know, he did not want to copy the communists. He did not see, you know, the worth in that. And he just said, no, what we are doing is we are saying this is actually the root, right? That's what radical means to go back to the root. This is the root of what Catholicism should be. It's caring for the poor, caring for each other. And he had this whole three-part plan to change the world. He truly did. And he he saw some of Dorothy Day's writings and he thought, okay, she's going to be my person to help me implement part of the plan, which was step one like get the message out, you know, through a newspaper, through Mm -hmm. writing. So I just love all these different ways they had of wanting to name it, the struggles they had. Dorothy and Peter fought a lot about these kinds of things. And I think you're exactly right. Dorothy, one of the reasons I love her so much is she was able to say like, I'm changed. I'm changing how I feel about things. And um, I think that's so important when we're talking about these people we like to call saints.
1: Yes, and she was surrounded by I mean, I think Peter should be a saint. She was surrounded by people, oh yeah, you know, and she saw the saint in them in in all these sinners that were around her, she saw these glimpses, these faces of Christ. And yet, we haven't even talked about the title of that book. She describes everything as the long loneliness, right mm-hmm. that we all suffer from this long loneliness. It's this repeated theme throughout her biography. Mm-hmm. But she's always showing these little pictures of everybody who's around her. So, I mean, would you be willing to just kind of expand, expound on the title? Like why, why loneliness? And this picture even looks lonely. I, my kids were looking at the picture of Dorothy, you know, it's that rigid pose, mm-hmm. holding onto her knees, hat, everyone around her seems to be standing. She seems lonely and separate yeah, from everyone else. Yeah. I don't, else.
4: I don't know if you could see in that, but like The Dorothy is like standing or sitting, clasping her knees, and like flanked on either side are police officers with weapons. (laughs) And they're there to, yeah, yeah, and they're there to arrest her because she was, um, protesting for migrant farm workers' rights in the 70s with Cesar Chavez, and um, she was doing that. She said. because uh, she was in her seventies at this time and she wanted to force the police officers to reckon with what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she sat there until they had to carry her off with their guns. Wow. Um, because she just wanted them to have to reckon with their ethical and moral choices they had made to get to that point in their life where they would arrest elderly Catholic women <laughs> who were just saying, you should treat migrant farm workers. Yeah. Better. Like human beings, I mean, like human <laughs> beings. And so I mean, that cover, if you look at like every biography of Dorothy and including the the recent covers of the Long loneliness, right? It is these pictures of her older. Mm-hmm. She does look very severe. She's never smiling in the photos. She's usually, you know, she's being arrested or she just looks very severe. and and the cover of my book, I was really happy. it's in color. I actually got in contact with Dorothy Day's granddaughter, Kate Hennessy, because I in researching my book and writing it, you know, Dorothy was like a chain smoker. Dorothy loved pre 40, right?
1: Pre, pre the retreats, pre 40. Yeah. So she, she
4: did have a conversion (laughs) experience that she writes about at the end of The Long Loneliness, kind of what she calls her second conversion Mm -hmm. with uh, Father Hugo and the retreat. But before that point, you know, she would just be talking theology and just smoking all the time and uh i couldn't find any image of dorothy with a cigarette which Mm. was interesting but kate hennessy or granite was like oh yeah i got him she sent me this amazing picture which was then stylized into the cover and dorothy is literally like wearing in the picture a medallion of the pope while smoking (laughs) a hand-rolled cigarette you know just like and that was her for like the more than half of her life is very drawn to god and also like her own person like Mm -hmm. she dressed like a saint like people in her neighborhood when she started her houses of hospitality she just wore these like long drab clothes like would wear a kerchief in her hair um and they were like who is this really tall striking looking woman she looks like she just stepped off the boat like Mm -hmm. like a refugee from italy or something like that just an (laughs) old world like catholic grandma Mm -hmm. and really she's just like yeah, this is how I want to dress. Like I want to dress like a saint and I want to smoke my cigarettes. I just think all of that together is, is just so amazing. So back to the title of her book, The Long Loneliness. I don't know if my insight is just going to be just squarely from my own perspective. So I'd love to hear your perspective on this. But for one thing, it's just kind of astonishing that someone could write a spiritual autobiography call it the long loneliness and have it become like a bestseller for generations um I don't know if anybody else is familiar with publishing um you're supposed to have titles that are a little <laughs> more upbeat than the long loneliness um that, I mean she was even subversive in that she's mm-hmm. just like oh you want to You want me to write a book for like a a big New York (laughs) times publisher? Okay. I'm calling it the long loneliness. Like just so, you know, like that's who she was now, as I was researching and writing this book, um, You know, Peter Morin, you already mentioned, like, he should be a saint. He kind Mm -hmm. of fits some of these older models we have of, like, the extremely eccentric person, like a St. Francis of Assisi, Mm -hmm. right? He couldn't really make it in the world. He ended up becoming a hobo and just really living off the kindness of other people, all that stuff. Dorothy was more of, like, a mover and shaker woman, you know what I mean? Like, getting stuff done. Um, But both of them really did not fit Into what we could call, you know, dominant culture society. And they never did really. And they, they, um, both of their lives, I think, are testaments to that. And, uh, Dorothy Day's daughter, Tamar, when she was older, she said, I am pretty sure I'm on the autism spectrum disorder, you know, somewhere on that spectrum. And of course, in the 30s and 40s, when I wrote my book, that was not a diagnosis. Um, but neurodivergence has always been a part of human history. And I see a lot of it when I look at stories of the saints or, you know, some of my most favorite religious figures and, um, you know, God theology and ethics can be someone's special interest. Usually we think of mm-hmm. special interest is like, Oh, I'm really interested in trains or, um, mathematics or computers. And I'm like, well, God and theology can also be that. So I see that in, in some of Dorothy's life. Um, and when, No matter what, you know, if we want to say maybe she was neurodivergent, maybe not. She was fundamentally at odds with the world in multiple ways. And I think she always felt that. And um, the fact that she chose to call her book that, I find there's something haunting about that. Mm -hmm. Because she's kind of making the case like we should all care about each other. We will only find happiness in community. And yet she still titled her book that she was still fundamentally a lonely person and truly the one person or the one figure in her life that was like a co-rememberer with her throughout her days was Christ. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Christ and the teachings of Christ were like some of the few places Dorothy didn't feel lonely. And so much of her loneliness stemmed from saying, why does the world work the way it does? Why is it so cruel? Why can't we treat each other better? Why are we okay with this suffering? Mm -hmm. And one of her main questions, especially early in life was like, why is the church a place where people go to forget the responsibility to their neighbor? Why do they go to church to pray and feel better about them going to heaven and like use their faith as an excuse not to be upset about mm-hmm. the state of the world.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So you know, I think she felt lonely in the church too.
1: I think that is such a paradox, this idea that her loneliness happens by her being a activist for the social teachings of the church. I mean, there's just so much paradox there, right? Mm-hmm. And was it Romano Guardini, I think she quotes at some point who says that the church is the cross Christ dies on.
4: Yeah. I feel like Flannery O'Connor also said something similar to that, right? And it's they, like they were all reading Gordini. Yeah. Okay.
1: There we go. <laughs>
4: like I didn't know that's where it came from. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just I've experienced that. It's mm-hmm. um, it's cognitive dissonance on a level that is so deep. I mean, I grew up very different from Dorothy Day. I grew up squarely within white evangelicalism in the United States. Um, I was homeschooled. Only went to Bible college to be a missionary. I took it all so seriously, Um, and then to have these constant interactions with people who profess Christianity yet whose lived ethics look nothing like the Sermon on the Mount. One of my favorite Dorothy Day things she ever wrote. She said, "Sermon on the Mount is our manifesto,"
0: Mm.
4: and that just struck with me so hard. But I feel the loneliness in that too. If you try and live an ethic of the Sermon on the Mm -hmm. Mount, you will be at odds with dominant culture Christians, both Catholic and Protestant Mm -hmm. in the United States. And I've experienced that. I've experienced the loss of community, the loss of support, the loss Mm -hmm. of identity, all of that. I really have struggled with loneliness. And to be able to immerse myself in the life of Dorothy Day for a few years to write this book was such a gift. It's such a gift to know other people struggle too. And I think we're at that, that kind of time in history again where so many of us are like, we are at war with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like what our religion says it believes in is at war with what's actually happening. Right. And when you call that out, it's lonely. Yeah. It's lonely work.
1: It reminds me of when Pope uh, John Paul II was, there was an attempt on assassination. And it was by a Muslim. And so Mm. some news reporter asked him, you know, does it bother you that Islam is gaining so much traction and having so many converts and the Catholic church is losing so many? And he said, no, because Christ said his followers will be few. And I think that that's also what she's pointing out with the long loneliness, those who actually embody the teachings of the church, who follow it, who are wrestling with it, who desire sanctity that we're supposed to desire, like that will be just a very small group. There will be mass movements, mass growths in religion, even what looks like mass growth of Christianity. But as we've seen throughout scripture too, those who are actually practicing within the churches that Paul and Peter are writing letters to, like it's a small group who keep the church going.
4: Yeah. And, and both Peter and Dorothy were just asking everyone around them, like, what does the church have to say to them? the people who are suffering the most in society. Yes. And if you have nothing to say to them, you have nothing to say. And I really resonate with that. I mean, they were like, if this is not about the common flourishing of all, Mm -hmm. then what is this about? It's a country club. Yeah. You know, like if this isn't about everyone flourishing, that's why Peter Warren was so, he was so invested in this three-part plan to change the world because he said the world has to change. It's right. so hard for so many people. It yeah. can't keep going as it is.
1: Yeah, and um, that's, that's what struck me with with day two. I mean, it sounds a lot like Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. this is, it's the church of the Disinherited and that's what Dorothy saw her place was uh-huh. who are the Disinherited in her time because that's where the church is.
4: Yeah, who are the people that have their backs against the wall? Yeah, That's absolutely what Dorothy was was thinking and she was really involved in all these labor movements and mm-hmm. you know people who were organizing for labor rights in the 20s and 30s and you know she mostly worked for like socialist magazines and wrote for them and then she saw this she became a catholic and about 5 years into being a catholic she was covering this hunger march this mm-hmm. hunger strike to Washington DC she saw all these men mostly men right who were just asking for the most basic of human rights, you know, the right to have dignifying work, um, all these things. And they were just being attacked by the police. The journalists Mm -hmm. were really whipping the people into a frenzy saying these were like violent people, but they weren't. Um, All this was going on. And she was like, what do I do? These, if Jesus was here today, he would look like these men who were marching, yes. he would be marching with them. He was poor. He was one of the dispossessed. He was, you know, a part of the people. Why am I on the sidelines trying to write about this for Catholic audiences? Yeah. Um, when Jesus would be there. And then that's when she went, prayed, um, at a shrine of Mary. I forget the name. I see, this is where I get a little mixed up because I'm not a Catholic. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> at the national, at the national cathedral, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, how can I marry my desire for societal change? My longing to be marching with these workers, with my Catholic faith, please show me a way forward. And then, you know, she goes home to New York that night nice. and who's waiting for her? Peter Morin That's at her so doorstep. I, so
1: I just love it so well, much. Well, so, okay, I'm going to go ahead and read that part because it is really good. She said, When the demonstration was over and I had finished writing my story, I went to the National Shrine at the Catholic University on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And there I offered a special prayer, which came with tears and anguish. And there, I love that because it's not the stern Dorothy, jaw set against the world. It no. is her at the feet of Mary praying. Mm-hmm. And she said, I wanted to use the talents I possessed for my fellow workers and for the poor. And as I knelt there, I realized, right, that she didn't know personally one Catholic layman. She didn't mm-hmm. have community. It was a long okay. loneliness, as you mentioned. And then, of course, Peter Maron enters the story and everything changes, right? And then she's never alone for the rest of her life. People always live with her. And- I know. <laughs> but she
4: still felt lonely. Mm-hmm. I mean- I think that's important to say, too, is um, there's still that threads. And and one thing I do also love about Dorothy is, you know, I I read The Long Loneliness, I don't even know how many years ago. Um, I was originally drawn to Dorothy Day because I found a button uh, at one of these like yeah. social justice Christian events with Shane Claiborne or something like that said. And the button said, if you have two coats, you have stolen one from the poor. And, you know, that was attributed to Dorothy Day. She, you know, she really got that from Peter Morin. Who got that from various other saints? And I was just like, Yes, I love a good black and white, mm-hmm. you know, sentence. I mm-hmm. I really see how the world is unjust and unequal. Um, I was so into that. Then I read The Long Loneliness and I really loved it, but I didn't understand so much of it. But the more I, I learned about her, the more I was like, in especially later in life, she spent so much time in prayer. And contemplation, Mm -hmm. Um, she did live a pretty like chaotic life in the Catholic worker house houses, but she always had time to go on retreats, she would go to Staten Island, she would go live with her daughter for periods Mm -hmm. and so actually when we do look at her full life there's some rhythms and routines in there that I was like oh yeah this is how somebody can do this their whole life. Cause I think that's one of the reasons Dorothy is in the process to be canonized is because she stayed in the Catholic worker until her death. Mm-hmm. She never left it. And she was, you know, one of the only ones, like most people would come stay for a while and then leave, but Dorothy stayed. And, and I really, there's something to that. These periods of rest, quiet contemplation, mm-hmm. um, the push and pull, she found so much solace in being alone. Uh, with God. So I don't know. That's something I've been thinking about as I think we're all struggling right now in this 24 seven horrible news, yep. do more, uh, you know, I'm taking care of two kids. It can mm-hmm. get so overwhelming. It's like, oh yeah, Dorothy also, you know, was this amazing activist, got got arrested all the time, all this stuff. But she also had these, these real rhythms of quiet solitude rest. and And that's what allowed her to keep going.
1: Yeah, her example is so beautiful. I mean, Peter Mauren talks about the way that he would try to convert people. He would give them a philosophy. For him, it was a philosophy of work. And this is in The Long Loneliness. He would say he'd give them a philosophy, and then he would cultivate their desires by giving them examples. And then half the battle was won. The rest was up to God and his grace. And that's so much what Dorothy does. The Long Loneliness is a philosophy and an example. And half the battle's there. I mean, if, like you said, if you're looking for a way to get through the loneliness we feel, the anxiety about the headlines and the constant problems and the repetitive injustice, here we have a philosophy and example that moves us through that. To me, that's one of the most beautiful reasons to read the book. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Is that,
4: so, I love okay. how, go ahead. I love how Dorothy, she's very, um, She's so kind when she writes about Peter. And that was like probably one of the most surprising things for me as I researched her book. Just by reading The Long Loneliness and sort of looking at like the history of it, I was like, Dorothy gives way too much credit to Peter Martin. Like Dorothy was a spitfire. (laughs) Dorothy sat down at her, you know, kitchen table with a typewriter and just busted out an eight page newspaper (laughs) on the problems of the day and the Catholic response to it, Mm -hmm. you know, but the more I research, I mean, it's clear that Peter Morin was also a genius in his own right. Mm -hmm. And he, in his knowledge of Catholic philosophy, theology, and history, Mm -hmm. I mean, they cannot be overstated. So I, that's a, that was a real turn I made in my own research is like, oh, Peter and Dorothy were kind of a dream team, Um, but he was quite bad at persuading people to be perfectly honest. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. She makes it sound like he was really good at it. I was like, Oh, well, (laughs) you know, we end with his death, like in the book, but one of the things that was striking was the wedding ceremony. And it also was a great metaphor. When Tamar gets married, Mm -hmm. it was a good example to me about how Dorothy day loved the things of this world. I mean, that's what drove her into the Catholic church, her love for her daughter, her desire to, you know, worship someone and give someone thanks. Right? Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. all the good things that were in life, which to me seems at odds with her poverty and her asceticism. But then when you see the wedding of her daughter, it's this beautiful image. You know, they had a ham that was donated to them, mm-hmm. they made eggs from their chickens on the farm. They're taking care of a baby goat during the wedding ceremony because some dog ate the mom goat. Oh my gosh. And then Peter gives this whole horrible speech that yeah. they all resented and hated, mm-hmm. but it was the last time he ever gave a talk. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it was just, there's, there's this whole gathering of these good things, but because you have so little throughout the book, because there is an asceticism in poverty, you get to see, there's like a striking view of the good things, right? I mean, to me, that that helped make sense of, okay, how could she love the things of this world and then also give them all up?
4: Yes. The end of the long willingness I think, is quite complicated because that's kind of where we get into um, Dorothy, what she calls her second conversion, and Father Hugo, this priest whose favorite thing to say was the best thing to do with the best things in life is to give them up. And um, that started a huge rift between Dorothy and her daughter. And um, it's a really painful time for many people in The Catholic Worker because they could not follow Dorothy into this aestheticism, into, Mm -hmm. And actually, Tamar was like, the one good thing was that my mom quit smoking because, (laughs) you know, like that wasn't great for her health and um, all that stuff. But everything else, it was just devastating. Mm -hmm. And so I would recommend to people um, reading the book written by you know Tamar's youngest daughter Kate Hennessy called the world will be saved by Beauty that gives a a much deeper portrait of what was going on especially around those times and and how hard Tamar's life ended up being mm-hmm. um I think is a really important piece to Dorothy and and most people who write about Dorothy you know do not spend a ton of time talking about her being a mother um because I think it it does get a little complicated but I would really recommend people uh, to read The Rule Be Saved by Beauty by Kate Hennessy if you want more yeah. on that relationship.
1: That's fantastic. Well, let me close with one last question. You already recommended another book, which I appreciate. I always want our conversations to lead to further book recommendations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's like my goal. So I wrote a book. The subtitle is Reviewing... Um, uh, renewing our imagination in the company of literary saints. So it's this mm-hmm. very similar idea to what Dorothy was doing, and she said constantly her companions were Father Zosima, mm-hmm. right, Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Akemps. Like these were the people they kept her company through the long loneliness. So I wondered if you would just conclude our conversation with just who are your who are your company, who do you keep in your company? Yeah,
4: I think that's such an interesting question. As, as I did write about Dorothy, you know, Dostoevsky just came up over and over again. These are that's like I would say one of the primary authors she just was obsessed with, and in I would I don't know how many years ago it was, like eight years ago, you know, I I tried to read some Dostoevsky and I liked it okay, but I do think you have to have sort of an awareness of the deep suffering of the world sometimes to really. um get some of these Russian authors and and Dorothy got it on a visceral level. So they made her feel less lonely. So obviously one person for me has been Dorothy Day. Like her writings have made me feel less lonely. Mm. Um, And I feel like her titling her book, that was like she was sending up a flare
1: Mm. to other
4: lonely people. And she caught me, you know, she got me. And I went on to read. um, So after I read The Long Loneliness, I read her Diaries. And that really sparked something in me because uh there's some differences there, right? There's mm. some differences in how she put forth. Obviously, one was meant for people to read and one was not. And so there was some tension in there that I found so fascinating. And then after that, I started reading, you know, her earlier books that she'd written about the start of the Catholic worker movement, Lowe's and Fishes. Um house of hospitality. I just loved all of it. I just loved all of it. And then I started reading uh her actual newspaper, especially from the 1930s. And these are all uh you know, digitized so yeah. people can read them. Cool. And they are intense. They will make your brain hurt. You will see that she truly <laughs> was a genius and mm-hmm. a muckraking journalist uh in her own right. And and so I've spent so much time with Dorothy's writings. What's also funny is coming out of white evangelicalism, I'm still someone who's really drawn to faith and religion, but I've needed to go outside of my own tradition, just as I deal with everything that's happened in my community, white evangelicals making headlines Mm -hmm. for all sorts of wretched reasons. Um, And somebody I found was another Catholic writer, and that's Brian Doyle. I don't know if you're familiar with him.
1: Yeah, I'm teaching him in my MFA class this semester. Oh, (laughs) I, I just
4: his essays are just my jam i Mm. so those would be the two authors that i've sort of been like i'm gonna try and read everything they write and just let it hit me in this emotion-filled place dorothy kind of helps me feel less lonely and brian doyle helps me um have what Dorothy called the duty of delight. That's like awesome. Brian Doyle, I trust as an author who knows the world is bad, knows it is messed up, but he is absolutely committed to seeing beauty. And that's I have, a, I struggle with that. I just, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, Brian Doyle is one of my <laughs> spiritual practices because he it. sees God in the smallest, most beautiful
1: things. And so mm-hmm. that's helpful for me personally. You could not have picked a better author to like set up because I'm I'm reading it next. Oh, <laughs> so that's awesome. so great! <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so thank you. Well, I really appreciate your book. I appreciate you taking this time to talk about the long loneliness. And I hope more people are going to pick up Dorothy's work, especially right now. I mean, I feel like it's a a 1930s book that's relevant today. Yeah.
4: And I, I think I said this before we started recording, but I wrote my book just basically so people would have... A lot more information going into reading *The Long Loneliness*. The goal of my book is not to say I'm an expert on Dorothy because I'm not, but hopefully to prepare people to just read Dorothy's words. That's mm-hmm. what I ultimately want mm-hmm. is and just have this fuller picture of the time period of who she was, and then also be thinking, "Huh, I think this has some relevance to today." Yes. So yeah, that's the goal with my book.
1: You did a great job. It gives us a model, and that's what we need to follow. We need we need more company of saints like Dorothy in our Thank heads. <laughs> in our hearts. I'm so grateful for her. Yeah.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.